As we uh, get kind of moving this morning, I want to share a story that happened in Charlotte, North Carolina. Some, most of you know that I was a pastor there, and the church plant did not go well. We ended up out of that ministry. But we were there, I guess it was about six months, and the, one of the pastors in our network, Dan Sutherland, who some of you got to meet a year and a half ago, he came here for a conference and came to kind of talk about what it means to transition and to lead a church that's outward-oriented. Dan had a, has a real heart for restoration, especially restoring pastors and people in ministry who have fallen and failed morally. Well, he had been reaching out to a man in, uh, in the Midwestern part of our nation, one of the fastest growing churches, one of the largest churches. It was a mega church. It had reached over uh, roughly 6,000 people at the time of it was its attendance. And through its heaviest and fastest growing period, the pastor of that church was in an a extramarital affair with his secretary. So Dan reaches out to him through friendship, shoulders him, and, and begins to help this guy put the pieces of his life back together and kind of get things moving. He had been doing that for a number of months, and he thought it would be good to bring him in to meet the rest of our team and to basically share his story so that we could learn from him and pick his brain and listen to some of the areas where he detoured and, and to help us begin to see the warning signs. As he sat with us, we, I remember sitting in the back of one of the pastor's deck in Charlotte, North Carolina. As he sat and he began to share, my heart inside of me said, this guy has something, he knows something that I don't. He has experienced life in a way and has learned from it and he's learned some things that I need. That's why a few weeks later, after a disagreement with my wife, I decided to, you know what, I want to reach out to this guy. So I gave him a call and we ended up meeting in one of the malls there in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I sat down with him and I began to unpack my story. And I began to tell him, you know, here's why I'm here. Here's what I'd like to learn from you. Here's what just happened in my life. And here's what continues to happen. And I began to unpack for him the story of my life. And I began to bemoan of all my failures. And he was hearing things like, I am such a jerk. I am so stupid, I am anal, I'm too intense, and I'm talking about all this stuff about me, all these I am statements. Now he stopped me in the middle of this food court, and he says, Adam, I have a question for you. Looks at me in the eyes, and he says, can you say for certainty that your mom and dad love you and have loved you? Now I got real agitated, I'll be honest. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, here we go with the psycho babble that's pin it all on mom and dad. I was, I was all worked up, and I'm like, oh, this is not my mom and dad's problem. My mom and dad were great parents. And I said with a resounding, yes, my mom and dad loved me. They made a point to tell me that every night we went to bed. Still to this day, when I hang the phone up with them, they say to me, we love you. I love you. It has nothing to do with my parents' love for me. Now, I appreciate his wisdom, and his, he didn't get agitated as my agitation grew. And he looked at me and he said, okay, let's, I understand it, Adam, but how about, do you know that they are proud of you? Can you say for certainty that they enjoyed you while you grew up? Now, I stopped a minute and I thought and I reflected. Now, this is nothing. This, what I'm about to share is in no reflection of my parents. This is all about me and what was going on inside of my own heart. What I found happening is he asked that question, are they proud of you? Do they enjoy you? Not just love you, but enjoy you. 
I found tears forming in the corner of my eyes. And as they kind of start pouring down my cheeks, I looked at him and I say, no, I can't honestly say they did or anyone has ever really been proud of me. He continued, he looked at me, I'll never forget his words. He looked and he, he said, Adam, you know what I find happening? You work real hard for that approval, don't you? I looked at him and I said, I do. I work hard. And then he said, and you never quite get it. I do. You're right. And you continue to blow it because we're bound to sin. You're bound to mess up, Adam, right? I do. You're right. And what happens after you do that is you feel this internal overwhelming shame and guilt that you blew it again. I do. And then what you do, Adam, I'm going to take a guess, is that you work harder and you dig deeper, focusing all the more on your failures and your shortcomings. I do. Then he looked at me, put his finger across the table. He said, Adam, I need to share something with you that you need to hear. And what he shared with me resonated so profoundly in my heart because it's the very same thing that the pastor I started ministry with in central Pennsylvania years earlier said to me. I said, man, I must need to hear this. He looked at me and he said, Adam, stop working for approval. Stop it. He said, stop working for it. Guys, could you... Cut the screen. I want to show the slide that's going to come up here. And then he said this. He basically said to me, there is no more wrath. It's not. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. He said, you are fully accepted. You are fully loved. You need to find your identity in the person of Jesus. Worship God, he said, and stop bowing down to the idol of success and of performance to find approval for your life. Stop it. Look to Jesus. There's no more wrath. There's no more condemnation. Then he quoted for me the verse that we're going to look at right in the very first part of our text this morning. He said, there is now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And he said, Adam, you are fully accepted. God is proud of you. Quit working for his approval and everyone else's. Now, this is an emotion that I've wrestled with for much of my life. And what I've discovered, this emotion of shame and this ill-placed guilt, I've realized many people do. A lot of times, shame begins to define us. It's an emotion that I believe, in my personal opinion, shame and this ill-placed guilt at times is an emotion that portrays hell more than any other emotion can. Dan Allender, who's a Christian counselor, psychologist, who spent most most of his life working specifically with abused, sexually abused people. He says this of shame. He says, shame is so painful that we react against it more than any other difficult emotion. It drives us. It pushes us. Shame is essence to believe that I'm deficient, that deep down inside as a human being, I don't bring to the table what it takes. It is the utter loss of intimacy. It's loss of wonder and joy. Basically what shame does, it's the I am statements of life. Shame at the end of the day are these, these contemptuous labels that we stick on ourselves. They may sound, and you see some of them on the screen, I'm fat, I'm stupid, I'm anal, I'm undisciplined, I'm an airhead, I'm ugly, I'm always late, I'm never prepared, I'm a jerk, I'm a workaholic, I'm never good enough, 
the I am stuff of life. This guy looked at me and says, Adam, you have defined yourself in all the wrong ways. Do you blow it? Yeah, Adam, you blow it. But those failures do not define you. The love of God and the grace of God defines you. Live in it. So I find that most of us in some way have defined ourselves with these I am statements. The thing I'd ask you is, is how have you defined yourself? Where are you weak? Might be one way to ask it. Probably maybe a better way to ask it is if you could change anything about your life at this given moment, what would it be? Anything in the world. Chances are at that place is where you find shame and where you've attached one of these I am statements. As I look at shame, I look at our culture. Shame, shame ravages our culture. I want to give you two indications of how I know that. First one, as you read and study the the counselors and the psychologists and the theologians who have studied shame, one of the things that they will say is one of the two of the biggest signposts with shame is anger and violence. As you stop and you look at our culture today, the world around us here in the West, we are an angry people. Road rage, senseless murders, women and children being beat, verbal and emotional abuse spewing from people's mouths that is just horrid. Violence and anger mark so much of our culture. When you study the people who study shame, one of the things they say is it is an indication of shame. Basically, what's happening is someone comes to you, and for me, one of my shame markers is I'm stupid. My school, the school I went to, shaped that as a child, and I have pushed back on that for much of my life, working my tail off to prove to people that I am not stupid. That's why if you walk into my office, I've got a lot of books. Now, I have books because I like to read and I like to study, but you know what else why I learned that I have books? Because it makes me feel good when people walk in and see a lot of books. He must be smart. So I've spent a lot of my time. Now, if I get with someone I love, like my wife or one of my children or one of you that I really care for, and I sense that you say something to me that might indicate that you think I am stupid, what do I do? The dart pierces the armor, it gets in, it creates this hurt. What we do is one of two things with shame. We either fight or we're going to hide is the second one I'm going to talk about. That dart comes in and I think, my goodness, that hurt and that pain, I'm stupid. Here it comes again. I am stupid. So what I do is I lash out to protect. I am not stupid. And anger and violence, whether it's under my breath muttering, I'm not stupid, or whether it's with a loaded gun to my head or someone else's, a lot of times anger and violence is driven by the shame that we feel. The second one, I think, along with anger and violence, the second signpost is really the fact that we hide. Now, this one we see not just from psychology and studying of people who study these things, but I think we see this right away in the first, the second, third chapter of the Bible. Adam and Eve created perfect to enjoy a relationship with God. They go and they sin. They blow it. What's the very first thing they do when they blow it? They realize that they're naked. 
Earlier in chapter 2, it says when they were created perfect, they are beautiful. And it says they were naked and felt no shame. They sin. What's the first thing they do? They go and put some clothes on. They put together some fig leaves to cover themselves up, to hide. And then they go and hide themselves in the garden where they don't think God's going to find them. We hide. When those I am statements begin to creep up and we feel shame and we feel, man, I'm not performing. I'm not hitting the mark. I did it again. We shrink into the sanctity of our world and get real self-absorbed with our failures. An incredible book that I just finished recently. This is one of these books that I only have two books outside the Bible that have really shaped me. And this is becoming one of them. This is probably the second one. It's a book by um, uh, Tulian Trevidian. He's the pastor that replaced D. James Kennedy down in Coral Ridge down in Florida. Big church. And he kind of writes of this personal pain and story that he's experienced. What it really means to be totally accepted by Jesus. The book is called Jesus Plus Nothing Equals Everything. And in the book, this is one of the quotes he says... He says, preoccupation with our guilt instead of God's grace makes us increasingly myopic and self-interested. The sin that gives rise to our sinful behavior is a preoccupation with self. A lot of times what ends up happening is we, we shrink into ourselves. I've blown it again. I've done it again. I've, 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 I've. I am, I am, I am. And we get absorbed with our guilt and our shame. Instead of stepping outside of ourselves and seeing God's grace. When we live on this performance treadmill, what ends up happening is we miss the grace of God because we're so consumed with ourselves. And as we do that, this peace perpetuates. The other thing that isolation does is if you write down a verse, you look at it this week, 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13. There in that verse, when I isolate, when I pull away, and when I hide, what also it does is it helps me to miss the reality that I am normal. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, there is not a single sin in your life that someone sitting in your row probably doesn't also struggle with. And when I get shame and I feel this pressure to come and hide, guess what happens? I don't see the reality of your sin. And that's when I see that, when I begin, when Tanya and I at times have hit tough spots or when I've worked through personal things in my own life that I've had to grow through, you know, it's really helpful to be with a group of people and realize, guess what? I'm normal. But what happens with shame and guilt is we pull into ourselves, we isolate ourselves from the rest of the world and we miss the fact that I'm normal. Doesn't mean I can't deal with it, but I'm normal. Often we know we fail. We know deep down inside that we're bad, that there's something wrong, that I'm a sinner. We feel this shame. We feel this guilt. And we hide and we cover and we work really, really hard to keep anyone else from seeing it. We use the law to get better instead of grace. And at the end, it condemns us. Turn with me to the book of Romans, chapter 8. As we continue in our series... Already not yet. Book of Romans, if you're new with us this morning. If you're new to the Bible, if you're new to Christianity, you're having trouble finding the book of Romans, it's three quarters of the way through. You can see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, you can hit a book called Romans. Or pull your smartphone out and find it there. Romans chapter 8. Now, see, grace teaches us that God is inclined to help us in our failure and that he sees our inability as part of reality. 
He gets that we are bound to sin. He knows it. He understands it. God is not our enemy is what we're going to see here. This whole chapter talks about that. Basically, where we're at right now in this series, we're already not yet. We started with Romans chapter 5, where it says every one of us is a sinner. Then the very next thing Romans chapter 5 talks about is we're all sinners, but Jesus has come to give us life. Romans chapter 6 comes along then and says that life is life fully. The chapter 6 says the gospel is not making about bad people good. It's about making dead people alive. And you are alive. Romans chapter 6 says that if you are in Jesus and he is in you, you died with him, you rose with him, you are like him. You are completely, wholly alive to him and dead to sin in your inner being. Romans chapter 7 then comes along. It's the not yet side of it. Okay, The already side is you're alive. Now the not yet side comes along and you say, yeah, but I still have this body. This body still is this flesh of sin that is still in me. I'm still in this shell of a body that one day will be redeemed. But right now it's not. So I still sin. At the end of Romans chapter 7 it says, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. So again, it all comes back to Jesus. And then chapter 8 comes. This unbelievable, unbelievable chapter. I want to read it, and then what I'm done, we're going to read through chapter verse 4, and then a video is going to come on that kind of, I think, sums up this message, and I'm going to just share a few comments after that before we head home. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, follow along as I read. Therefore, just as sin entered the world, I'm sorry, I'm in chapter 5, excuse me. Chapter 8, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Jesus and Jesus is in you, there is zero, no more condemnation. Because, here's why, he's going to give the reason. Because through Christ Jesus, through Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. We saw that in Romans chapter 6. Through Jesus, I am free. You continue reading for what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature. We saw that last week in Romans chapter seven, the law, all the law does is reveals that I'm a sinner. It shines a spotlight on how utterly sinful is the word Paul uses. I am going to blow it. I will continue to blow it. The law simply gives me opportunity to see that and reveal me as a sinner. So it goes on for what the law was powerless to do. We remember read last week too, that sin in us still deceives us. And when the law increases, sin increases all the more. So it goes on verse three for what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the sinful nature. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in sinful man. You know what it's saying? Jesus was sent, Chris talked about this, the great exchange, when he talked about in Romans chapter 5. Jesus came to this earth, fully God, yet fully man, and he took your sin and he took my sin upon himself. And all of the wrath of God was poured out on him in his death and burial. All of it. That's why when Jesus hangs on the cross, he looks up to heaven and says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the very first time in all, all of eternity, past, present, and future, there is now this split between Jesus and God, where there used to be full, unbridled, incredible unity and passion and connection. It is now all the wrath of God is being poured out on Jesus for you and for me. Wrath that we don't need to take upon ourselves. Because of that, there is now no condemnation. Look at verse 4. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might fully be met in us. So when you have this exchange and you say, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I need you. He comes and lives inside of you. There is an exchange. And now God looks down at you and says, you are fully righteous. Because all the wrath that was due you is now placed on Jesus. 
And the verse continues. Let me finish the whole, actually read the whole verse. In order that the righteous requirements of the law might fully be met in us who do not live according to the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. Get saved because then you won't. And I got saved and kept on doing. So then where am I supposed to go? Because apparently Jesus doesn't work for me. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. We'll, we'll work through this. But I'm not letting you go in the meantime. Oh, we'll get there. I'll finish it. I started it. I'll be faithful to finish. Don't give up. Keep walking. Keep pressing in. Keep confessing. But don't give up. I'll heal you. I won't let you go. There is no one who can condemn you. I don't. And if I don't, no one can. Who will even bring a charge against you? Your mind. What court could they possibly charge you in? Everything's mine. He is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree. Bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy When all of a sudden I am unaware of these afflictions Eclipsed by glory And I realize just how beautiful you are And how great your affections are for me Oh, how he loves us Oh, oh, how he loves us How he loves us That God in eternity looked upon me Foreseeing my fallenness, my pride, my sin And said, I want that man in my family I'll do anything to get him in my family I will for him to be in my family with my son's life. That's love, folks. That is mega, off-the-charts love. He is jealous for me. Love's like a hurricane. I am a tree. Building me the weight of his wind and mercy. When all Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. That, that's why. We've got this weird compartmentalization thing that happens where you don't think that God sees all that you are or that if he could have somehow knew who you were going to be, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. Um, listen, God knew you were going to be messy. Uh, Christ knew that you were going to be messy. 
God, God knows that you're going to screw up often. He knows that you're going to be drawn to things that are wicked. He knows that's what the cross is all about. The whole point of the cross is that you're going to fail and you're going to stumble and you're going to feel dirty and you're going to feel awkward. And you're gonna, the whole point of the cross of Christ is there be this mighty picture of his love and pursuit of you despite you. So the cross is necessary because of you, but it's also the picture we have of just how far God is willing to go because He loves you. bitter against the church. I just think somehow we've got off and there's all this talk about morality and people are conforming themselves to these moral codes, but they don't know Jesus. Who cares? It's the resurrection of Christ that justifies. That's why it's so important. That's why it's so big. It proves that all the wrath of God was poured out. It's gone. For the elect, it's gone. There is no more wrath. There's, there's none. So Jesus sees you and he's like, my son, my daughter, perfect, spotless, blameless. at Romans 8.1. I want to drill this down. I want, my prayer is that we leave here this morning, if you are in Jesus, this truth in your heart. The word therefore, the very first word that shows up there, therefore is a transitional term. It's a, conclude, it's a conclusion. It's saying because of what I have been talking about, because of everything I've been saying from Romans chapter 1 through 7, therefore, because of this, what has he been talking about? All through Romans chapter 1 through 7 is justification by faith alone in Jesus, period. Through what he has done for me through grace alone, period. It's not through the law, period. Therefore, because of that, therefore, he says, because of that, there is now no, the word no. Now, I'm not a Greek scholar. I know just enough to be dangerous. I rely on tools and other men who are. But a lot as I studied this week, the word no is this tiny little word that basically it's an adverb. And it basically captures this picture of time. It carries the idea of complete and total cessation. It's over. It's done. 
In other words, what it's saying is the sins that have been passed, the things that you have done, therefore, there's now no condemnation. The things that you are doing today, therefore, there is now no condemnation. And the sins that are yet to come, this word, this little tiny no condemnation, it captures all of time, past, present, and future. No condemnation. So as you sit here this morning, you think through the things that you have done, the things that you define yourself as. No condemnation in those areas. The word condemnation is a powerful word. It's not just, I mean, we think about this word, but it relates to the sentencing for a crime. Its primary focus is not so much on the verdict as the penalty that that verdict demands. The penalty of the verdict of being a sinner, what is it? It's death. For the wages of sin are death. Romans chapter 5, death through one man. Death, separation, complete and total separation. You are dead without Jesus. And Jesus has come and he's made you alive. You don't face death. You're not separated from God. There is no condemnation, no more wrath. Powerful, powerful concept. We do not grow. We do not grow unless we are known and we are loved spiritually. Known and loved. I think about this, <laughs> I think in my own life, you know, <laughs> some people like me, but they don't know me. Some of you like me, but you don't really know me. Others of you know me, so guess what? You don't like me. <laughs> but to be known and loved through Jesus, that's what God is doing for you. You are known and you are loved and there is no condemnation, period. It's a powerful truth. Now, some will say at this point, some will stick their hand up to me and say, no, wait a minute, Adam. And I was one when I sat there in Charlotte in that food court, I stuck my hand up and I've been sticking my hand up ever since I was there in Mifflin County and saying this. But now, wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. I'd say, how about guilt? How about the conscience that God has given us? Shouldn't I feel bad when I sin? Now, the answer that I've come to over the years and I've wrestled with and wrestled with, and I'd say, yes, you're right, we should, but it's different than shame. God doesn't talk about shaming us. He talks about godly sorrow, and there is a huge difference. Look at this week, 2 Corinthians 7, 10. I'm not going to look at it today, but write it down and look at it this week. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. There it talks about there are two kinds of sorrow. There's one that's going to lead to repentance, and there's one that's going to lead to death. Shame is the one that leads to death. Now, what's the difference? I want to try and unpack this. I don't know. I don't, this isn't the heart this morning, but I think this aids in what we're talking about. So I just want to take a little bit of a detour here. Shame or what I would call false guilt. What it really does is focuses on me. How bad I am. What I have done to you. What I, that focuses on me. The primary concern is with how I am feeling, not the destructiveness of the problem, or it's not the sitting with the reality of what I have caused you to deal with. It's focused on me. The illustration biblically that I would use is Peter and Judas. We have two men, both follow Jesus, both claim to love Jesus, both claim to be his disciple. Two men, both betrayed Jesus. The first one comes into Jesus and he, and he basically betrays him with 30 pieces of silver. 
The se- that's Judas. The second one, Peter, he's sitting around a fire and the people say, don't, aren't you with Jesus? And he says, I've never seen this guy. He does it three times. One of them goes out and hangs himself. He ends his life. It says in the scriptures that he felt bad. He wanted to fix the problem. At the end of the day, what he really wanted to do is he wanted to feel good. He wasn't concerned with sitting in the other person's shoes. He wasn't concerned with sitting in Jesus' shoes and what it must have been to be betrayed by a kiss in a garden at your darkest and lowest hour. He wasn't concerned with that. He was concerned about himself feeling better. The second one, Peter. Peter has godly sorrow. 52 days after he denies Christ, he is found standing in front of the nation of Israel preaching one of the most powerful messages we find in the Bible and sees 3,000 people come to know Jesus 52 days after he denies Christ. What's the difference between he and Judas? Peter had an encounter with Jesus on the, on the shores. He decides to go back to fishing. Jesus shows up and three times Peter is asked this question, do you love me? Do you love me, Peter? Now in the Greek structure of that interchange, what Jesus is really saying is, Peter, I get that you love me. I get it. And I get that you see the pain that I am sitting with and I sat with that night when I was in my darkest hour completely alone and one of my closest friends walked out on me. Peter was able to take himself away from just feeling bad to be able to put himself in the other person's shoes and say, I get it. That's godly sorrow. And it isn't just about fixing it and cleaning it up so I feel better about myself It's about sitting with the reality of what I've caused another. Basically, the way to sum it up, godly sorrow is others-oriented. It's not consumed with me. It's not the I am bad, I have done, I can't believe, I, 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 I. It's saying, my goodness, if I've wronged Chris, it's saying, my goodness, look at what he has to live with. Enter his world, empathize with him, see what I have done to him. It's not just me. It's others-oriented, godly sorrow. And because of that, it drives change because you love the other person. Shame is an experience of feeling bad or deficient. It says, I'm bad, I'm no good. Godly sorrow looks at the idols of my heart and says, Adam, where are you looking to find life, identity, and purpose? I believe at the end of the day, why most of us go to shame and not godly sorrow is because it's safer for us to feel shame, no matter how destructive it is or how painful, than to feel sorrow and live with the reality of what you have caused another person. That's hard. It's easy for me to feel bad about the abuse that I may cause one of you than for me to actually enter your world and empathize with the pain that you are living with because of what I have done. It's much easier to walk around and say, oh, woe is me. What a loser. I can't believe this. You know what? I will work harder. I will get better. I, 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 than to step out of myself and say, you know what? I'm going to live with that pain, what I've caused you. Sorrow increases. Godly sorrow increases the momentum to seek and to knock and to ask to come out of hiding. Godly sorrow basically is saying, here I am, God, I am going to stand naked in front of you because I am fully accepted and I'm approved, not based on my performance, but on what Jesus has done for me. And I'm going to stand here and I'm going to ask you for help and wisdom because I know you approve me. 
You know, this is one of my greatest, greatest struggles with accountability groups. I struggle with accountability groups for years. And some of what I struggle with, what happens in an accountability group? The average accountability group, the average small group, you know what we do? We practice law. We condemn people. I come into an accountability group. The question is asked to me is, Adam, are you living up to the standard? Right? Isn't that what we ask? How'd you do this week? Now, if, all, if we're honest, and if I'm honest with my accountability group, what am I going to say? I blew it. I blew it. Now, what does the accountability group typically say back to me? Oh, we forgive you. Now go out and do better. I look at that and I say, no, that's not the message of Jesus. That's not what's going to help me. That adds to my shame and my guilt and my performance orientation. You know what I want to be told in that accountability group when I blow it? What I need to tell myself? I want to have my friends say to me, Adam, you're momentarily suffering from identity crisis. You don't understand what Jesus has done for you already. You're forgetting who you belong to. Let me remind you, Adam, what I want my friends to say to me in those accountability is let me remind you what you really want at your remade new core, who you really are. Let me remind you of that, Adam. Let me remind you of what Jesus has done for you and see Jesus and his grace and his mercy. Let me remind you of that. Let me remind you of what you already are and what you already have in Christ. Let me remind you of that, Adam. Not go out and do better. Now, as I'm reminded of that, and I sit with and realize, and I have that godly sorrow, guess what happens? I naturally go out and do better. I need my friends to tell me again and again and again in these groups, God doesn't accept you when you obey. He doesn't accept you any more when you obey or any less when you disobey. You are fully accepted. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, period. The greatest need is to look to Christ more than we look to ourselves. The gospel, the message of Jesus, Jesus' life-giving, it's what the gospel is. The good news of Jesus is not our work for Jesus, but Jesus' work for me. At the end of the day, who can condemn you? There is no more wrath. None. You know what I find interesting to me? I want to read a quote here. Out of that book I referenced earlier, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. What I find interesting is in the church world, there's kind of two trains of thought. One says the church is for the elect. The church is people who know Jesus, who gather together and need to be taught. Another train of thought says it's to reach the world. And we mobilize and we should be bringing the world into us. The church is on a mission. Do you know what I find interesting? I was talking to Chris this week. You know what I really find interesting? The model that says the church is for the elect, the church is for the believer. We are to disciple and grow believers. Do you know what I find interesting? When you study those pastors across the globe, not just the nation, do you know what they preach a lot on? The wrath of God. And that's sick. It's not biblical. If you're coming in here and you're in Jesus, I should be standing up and saying to you, there is no more wrath, period. 
And what's interesting to me, you go to the churches who are saying, I'm all about reaching the world. I'm all about bringing people in. Guess what they don't talk about? The wrath of God. They talk all about the love of God. But guess what? The wrath of God remains on people who are not in Jesus. I find, I'm sorry, why do we get this so mixed up? If you are a believer in Jesus, there is no condemnation, period, end of story. All those pastors that stand up and try and heap guilt and wrath on you and condemnation, tell them to get lost. Stop listening to them. Shut their books. Quit downloading their messages. I want to read this quote. This is amazing. This, this is, I, it talks about what I just mentioned, but he does it much more eloquently than what I'm able to. He says this, this is Travidian again. He says, most people in the pew are simply not acquainted with the doctrine of justification, meaning being made right with Jesus purely on, on, through Jesus' work for us. So he says, most people aren't acquainted with it. Often it is not a part of the diet of preaching and church life, much less a dominant theme in the Christian subculture. With either stern rigor or happy tips for better living, fundamentalists and progressives alike smother the gospel in moralism through constant exhortations to personal transformation that keep the sheep looking to themselves rather than looking outside of themselves to Christ. The average feature article in Christian magazines or Christian bestsellers is concerned with good works, trends in spirituality, social activism, church growth, and discipleship. However, it's pretty clear that justification is simply not on the radar. Even where it is not outright rejected, it is ignored. Perhaps the forgiveness of sins and justification are appropriate for getting saved, but then comes the real business of Christian living, he says sarcastically. As if there could be any genuine holiness of life that did not arise out of a perpetual confidence that there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We need a steady diet of there is no more wrath. So as I close in prayer, I'm going to pray for two groups of people here this morning. The first group, as I talk, I just want to mention to you, as I'm going to pray for you, the first group. The first group is this. The first group is a person, and we have them here. There's a number of you here. And I appreciate, to high heaven, the number of you that are here that are honest about it. And to say, I'm here seeking and trying to explore this thing called Christianity. But the first group are those that can honestly say that I am not in Jesus and Jesus is not in me. Who can honestly say that I'm not what the Bible calls born again. I am not a Christian You know, my heart for you this morning is that no more wrath cannot be said of you. John chapter 3 verse 36 says that Jesus died. And when I embrace him, that wrath is gone. But it says in John 3 36 that if I am not in Jesus, the wrath of God remains on my head. If you're sitting here this morning and you do not, cannot say I am in Jesus and Jesus is in me. If you're sitting here this morning, you can say, you know what? I've never come to that place where I realize that I can't do this on my own, that I need God's help, that I'm a sinner. Jesus is fully God and I am going to embrace him. The Bible teaches God's condemnation and his wrath is being poured out on you as we speak. You are separated from him and you will eternally be so when you die in that position forever and ever in a place called hell. 
So if you're in that place this morning, this is the coolest thing would be is if you just simply say, I get it. I don't want to be condemned. I don't want that wrath. It's as simple as simply saying, I'm a sinner. Jesus is God. I accept him, period. It's that easy. Now, to those of you, the second group I'm going to pray for, those of you that can say here with certainty that I am in Jesus, you are what the Bible would call born again, a new creature. You have new life. You are a Christian. I'm going to pray for you. And the question I ask is, are you living day to day, moment by moment, hour by hour, minute by minute in the grace of Jesus, period? Are you relying on him? Are you saturating your heart with the love of God? Ephesians chapter three in our quiet time we had recently. Paul's prayer is, I pray that you know the love of God, that you know it, but it surpasses all knowledge. I chuckle with that. How can I know something that surpasses all knowledge? But he says, I want you to know this. Saturate your heart in that. God's grace for you, his mercy, his love, the fact that he does not condemn you. I'd ask for you as I close in prayer for you to name the I am statement, the thing that you preach to your heart. And repent of that. And say, God, thank you for grace. Thank you for love. And I want to live in that moment by moment, day by day. No condemnation. God, thank you so much for Jesus. God, I thank you for each person here. They each come with their own story. They each come with their own pain and heartache and joys and victories. And God, each one of them is at a different place with you, journeying with you. They're here today, not because I trust, not because they have to be, because they're trying in some capacity to say, I want to grow in this thing called a relationship with Jesus. God, the first group of person I mentioned just a few minutes ago that I pray for right now, those that are here that cannot honestly right now in the core of their heart say, I know that I'm a new creation in Jesus. I know that I'm what the Bible calls born again. I know that I'm now in the family of God solely based on Jesus' work for me. God, I pray for that person right now. God, the Bible teaches that your wrath is being poured out on them. The punishment that Jesus took upon himself is still reserved for them because they've not found themselves exchanging their life with Jesus. God, I pray for them right now. I pray right now. I pray hard that they would, they would hear your voice and they would simply say, I know I'm a sinner. I know Jesus is God. I know he paid that price for me and I accept him, period. And then God, for the other group that's here, people that say, I know that I'm a Christian. I know that I'm born again. I know that I'm in the family of God, not based on my works, but based on what Jesus has done for me. God, we need that same message preached to our heart every single moment of every day. God, right now, as they're thinking about the shame that they've heaped upon themselves, the, whether it's in an I am statement or whether it's just some deep down pressed in identity where they're looking to something to find life outside of Jesus. God, would in their heart right now, they just repent that to you. In godly sorrow, would they understand the hurt and the pain that they've caused another? Would they sit with that? And when, maybe the hurt and pain that they've caused you a God who is radically for us, who radically loves, who we can go to the bank on Romans 8.1. It says, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, period. Would you drive that period into our heart? And would we live from a place where we are fully dependent moment by moment, day by day on the grace 
that you have bestowed upon us through Jesus. Will we continue moment by moment to rely on your work for us, not our performance for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.